Kia ora and welcome to Te Hiringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. Earlier this year, as COVID-19 landed on New Zealand's shores, the swift and effective leadership of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, Dr Ashley Bloomfield and others was key in the country's successful response. But there have also been many cases where leaders have not effectively managed a crisis, leading to dire results. In this podcast, Pro Vice-Chancellor and Dean of the Wellington School of Business and Government, Professor Ian Williamson, speaks with Dr Ashley Bloomfield and others about effective leadership and their advice for leading through a crisis. Warm Pacific greetings to everyone today. Mary, thank you very much for opening up the ceremonies this morning. We're very excited for this event. Uh, this is part of our Dean's Seminar Series uh, that I, as the Dean, run. And we look at the seminar series as an opportunity to bring together thought leaders from around the country, and oftentimes even internationally, to focus on issues that we know are critical to our community. And I can think of no more important topic than this issue around leadership in times of crisis. Um, we see ourselves as a global civic university, and so this ability to bring together individuals who represent perspectives from government, from private sector from the civil society is truly, I think, what we're trying to achieve here at the Wellington School of Business and Government. It's one of the reasons why we're so proud and so happy that we can partner with IPANS to sponsor this event. It's actually the second time we've worked with IPANS. We reasoned previously this early this year, pre-COVID, had a great event where we looked at the issue of developing inclusive workforces across New Zealand. So I think this just builds upon that particular partnership. But we'll jump right in to today's topic, which is leadership in times of crisis. And we have a phenomenal group of panelists today to talk about their experiences, which I think will bring together the best that we have to offer from the world of academe, corporate, as well as government. Let me introduce our panelists. So first we have with us someone who I imagine many of us have at least seen at some point in time over the last six months. Uh, we have Dr. Ashley Bloomfield. Dr. Bloomfield is the Director General of, the Health and, uh, of Health and the Chief Executive of the Minister of Health. Previously, he served as a chief executive of Het Valley District Health Board, and prior to that, had many other additional roles in the Ministry of Health. His expertise is in the area of non-communable disease prevention and control, and previously spent time at the World Health Organization working on a specific topic. Dr. Bloomfield, thank you very much for joining us. We also have with us Dame Therese Walsh, who is the chair of Air New Zealand. Very proud to say she's also the pro-chancellor of Victoria University of Wellington. She also serves as an independent director on such organizations as ASB Bank, Antarctic New Zealand, Contact Energy. She was the chief operating officer of Rugby New Zealand in 2011, as well as the head of New Zealand for the 2015 ICC Cricket World Cup. So this is someone who's had a great impact, not just in terms of the corporate sector, but also a huge passion for sports and has been involved in bringing some tremendously successful sporting events here to New Zealand. Her leadership has been recognized in many ways. She was the Woman of Influence Award winner in 2013, as well as the recipient of the Sir Peter Blake Trust Leadership Award. And I, it would be remiss of me not to mention as well that she's an alum of our faculty in the business school. Thank you very much for joining us. Third, we have Sarah Stewart Blake, which I'm told most people will know as Nora. Uh, she is the Director of Civil Defense Emergency Management and Deputy Chief Executive of National Emergency Management Agency, uh, Sarah, or Norm, is someone who has tremendous international experience in the area of emergency response. Uh, she's had a wide range of experience in this particular domain globally, working in England, Ethiopia, Solomon Islands. 
Um, she has also uh, worked on the United Nations Disaster Assessment Coordination Team. Someone is recognized as a scholar in this area, having published several papers in international journals, as well as co-editing three books. Norm, thank you very much for joining us. And finally, we have one of our own, Dr. Daniel Lawfer, who is an associate professor of marketing here at the Wellington School of Business and Government. His expertise is in the area of crisis communication and understanding how best to work with stakeholders during periods of crisis. His expertise has been recognized globally. He's a, comment, a constant commentator in many media outlets. He served on the panel of experts for the Wall Street Journal since 2014 in the specific area of crisis management. He also has been covered by such media outlets as CNN, The Economist, The Guardian, and The Associated Press. Dr. Luffer, thank you very much for joining us. So I'm going to jump right in, and maybe I'll have a seat and get comfortable. And we'll start with a discussion around some of the particular topics that we think are quite critical. And Dr. Bloomfield, I think I'll start with you. And I think it's really interesting um, in the sense that quite quickly you became, if you like, the face for our nation in terms of guiding us through this particular time and period. And you know, it really was quite critical for individuals to come to trust you to, as you talked about, really complex issues and complex topics. And I really would like to get your sense as to how you prepared yourself for being in that role. Um, what were some of the learnings you had in being in that role? Well, uh, Morena and uh, kia ora koutou katoa. It's great to be part of the panel today. Um, I, I guess I should start by saying nothing prepares you for this. And uh, I was reflecting earlier on that uh, in the first few weeks or of this of this event uh, starting, I can remember waking up in the morning thinking, I wish this wasn't happening. This is the pandemic. This is the black, black swan event as it became apparent. So uh, really there are two or three things I was drawing on and one of those of course was my training over many years starting in medicine, uh, working in public health, working in a whole range of settings both in New Zealand and as you mentioned some time at the WHO and I've always um, taken the approach of trying to accumulate uh, knowledge and, and listen to others and find out um, and develop skills. Um, and one of the skills I've, I, I already had a start in was around communication. I was used to and comfortable with, with public speaking and with media, uh, but I dare say I've had a, an opportunity to practice and um, refine that skill a lot over the last few months and probably done somewhere between 200 and 250 stand-ups or, or media interviews. But I got very good advice from my, my comms team uh, early on. 27th of January, I did my first stand-up, and they joke about how at that time I had to introduce myself and tell this, the public who I was. Um, I don't need to do that so much anymore, but that daily stand-up became quite a critical um, interface with the public, and I soon realised that it was a way for us to get our information out unedited to everybody, and of course... At the time, we were facing that absolutely fundamental leadership challenge, which I know others here will have as well, having to make huge calls and give advice on very big decisions with very limited and incomplete information. Uh, we now have more information than we, we had then, but uh, at the time, we could only go on what we had, and we made a de deliberate decision to communicate to the public, this is what we know and this is what we don't know, and so by the time we got to that point where we said to everybody uh, in the third week of March, and now we want you to stay at home for four weeks, people understood the why, and all we were telling them was the what and how. And I think that was critical to our, our success in breaking that chain of transmission in that first wave. I think that issue of leadership in that moment of crisis, of being comfortable with that vulnerability of being able to identify the things you know, but also being able to identify the things you don't know, and yet still maintaining trust is quite critical. And, you know, whether th particular things in terms of 
how you thought about communicating, particularly those things where you, you say there's uncertainty here in a moment when people, I think, probably always want certainty. What, what was your experience around it? What, what was your, how did, you, how did you feel like you navigated that? Or what advice would you give for individuals who are thinking about how they navigate that? Look, that's an incredibly important question, and and I guess that right from day one, all I did was try to be myself. Yeah. And you know, there's this notion of of being authentic and being yourself, and that served me well because then I don't have to go back and think what did I say the day before <laughs> or who was I yesterday. And uh, as the sort of interest and uh, and my my I guess um, penetration into people's uh, households through the television grew, um, and there was the feedback coming in from the public about how important they found that. Um, you know, some of my staff were quite puzzled because they said, well, all we're seeing is you up there being yourself. That's mm -hmm. how you are at work. And I guess that was the most important feedback I could get is um, being authentic, being open, being honest, and in particular right from the start saying, we don't know this or I haven't got that information, but we'll go away and find it. And I think that was fundamental to us um, building trust uh, with the public. Thank you very much. So, Danwash, we'll, we'll ask a few questions for you if you don't mind. Um, you know, I think you're, you're chair of Air New Zealand, and I can think of no organization has been more impacted by that and, and has such a critical role in our society. So I just, as you reflect upon your experiences, not just with Air New Zealand, but all the other, the other organizations, how has this experience, this COVID crisis, impacted the way you lead and, and your perspectives around leadership? Um. Manamihi mai, Professor Williamson, and kia ora koutou, um, everyone. Uh, look, it's a really big question and such a big topic uh, that we're talking about. And um, I'm still in the throes, as, as probably most New Zealanders are, of, of kind of learning as you lead through crises. And um, it's been uh, the most significant crisis in the aviation industry's history. So it's it's truly significant. I mean, we went uh, from one day to the next losing 95% of our revenue, uh, which is as big as any crisis you can imagine um, in corporate history. So really significant. And so what are the learnings so far for us, um, particularly in New Zealand, but also as I look across other organisations and industries that I'm involved with across the country? Well, firstly, you've got to take some time really quickly and get the uh, operational piece right. And for in New Zealand, the good part was that we're very used and we have really good muscle when it comes to crisis management. When you're putting aircraft into the sky every day, you need to make sure that you're very on top of things in that regard. So that kind of muscle was there. The bit that needed to be overlaid was um, some unique uh, kind of decision-making. And with that unique decision-making, a little bit like Dr. Bloomfield was talking about, you have to uh, take risks. You do have incomplete information. You have to do what you believe to be the right thing at that time. So it needs to be brave and quick decision-making to the best of your ability, uh, judging many things. So I'll give you an example of that. The Wuhan repatriation flight that was a really big call, you know, when you're leading an organisation and you're actually asking people to put themselves on the line uh, for New Zealanders and to do uh, that type of a mission is a big deal. So that's just sort of a little example. Um, so from an operational perspective, that's really important. My background in sport, actually, and really large-scale global sporting events was really important in terms of um, my own understanding of how command and control works. And you really need to have strong command and control structures during a crisis because otherwise you can get into chaotic messes uh, with people not understanding their roles and responsibilities. So that would kind of be the next thing. I think the other thing is that um, you need to have some people 
who can have the space to think past the crisis, to think to the next phase, to think to the medium and to the long term. Because if you spend too much time on the right here and now operational issues, you will lose your way in terms of decision making going forward. And probably actually the most important, which I'll just finish with, is the communication and the engagement. Especially, you know, if you think of Air New Zealand, where many people have lost their jobs as a result of this crisis, this pandemic, uh, communication, engagement, authenticity, uh, all of those things, really critical because um, all the news wasn't good, but it was important for the news to be honest, uh, for us to continue with our engagement and communication in the face of, you know, um, media, other stakeholders having views and opinions on things that are going on, but actually being true to every Air New Zealander and their own personal journey and how we are supporting that. And as part of that, looking after each other, the resilience of each individual is important. And what I think is really interesting is that we'll often sit in a boardroom, um, perhaps, you know, a cabinet or somewhere else, and you might talk about the resilience and the mental health of those people in your organisations, but you've also got to think about the leaders themselves, and it's a marathon, not a sprint when you're in a crisis mode. So um, those are important lessons for me, Professor Williamson. I, I think it is important to appreciate that it's happening real time in context and all of you are in situations where you're providing information in a public domain. So there's always going to be that added pressure. Any, any sense about how you at, at a personal level ensured that you were, your well-being was okay, how you handled those pressures, any, any things that you tried to do to make sure you had that space for yourself just to kind of make sure you stayed on balance? Well, I, I mean, I think it's the same as it is normally. It's just intensified. And I think we all lean on uh, the structures and the processes that we normally have in place to um, keep ourselves resilient. And, you know, that might be your family, your friends, you know, mum would send me a text saying, you know, with a smiley face. And it's all those things. But I think it's um, important in the organisations that you're working in to have those relationships where you're actually, you know, there are very few people you can have the honest conversations with in terms of where you're at, where they're at, but to have those directly with each other is important. So if I think of Greg, who's the Chief Executive of Air New Zealand, we talk every day. We, we check in on each other, you know, where are we at, What's what are we dealing with today, how are you, etc. So I think all those things become really important. So Mr. Blake, Norm, maybe I'll ask a few questions of you. Um, so one of the interesting things about your role in responding is that you have to pull together a wide variety of different agencies uh, which normally would operate very effectively by themselves, but now they need to operate in a highly coordinated manner. And um, that, I would imagine, would be quite challenging. And I, I'd love to get your thoughts about how you go about leading when you're trying to bring together diverse groups of individuals and organizations to achieve a common goal. Kia ora koutou, everyone. Um, look, I think that, the, as you've heard from the other speakers, that this is fast-paced, it's intense, and it's complex. And actually, that requires in this situation, a joint leadership model. So uh, myself and Ashley were part of what was called the quintet, which wasn't anything to do with musical instruments, um, but was with John Ombla, um, Mike Bush, a former police commissioner, Dr Peter Crabtree, leading policy and strategy, because this required an entire system response from left to right, top to bottom, all parts of government, um, lifeline utilities, local government, a whole range of not-for-profit organisations were all part of this response effort. And so the ability for us to be able to complement um, that resourcing requirement with existing networks and organisations that were practised and experienced was critical to this. 
Um, for Ashley and I, um, we both have a unique um, legislative role, and so for us, um, and I'm sure Ashley will have some commentary on this too, there had to be no air gap between what I was doing in my statutory role in complementing Ashley as the person leading the response. And part of the challenge we have is with devolved accountability models, uh, both in health and in civil defence emergency management, it's really important that the work that we do is, is, is underpinned by strong and effective relationships because we're asking people to do things above and beyond what they might also have to do for other types of emergencies. So in some situations um, during this COVID response, I asked civil defence emergency management groups to do things I've never asked of them before. Um, it was uncomfortable at times and challenging, but equally those civil defence emergency management groups did those things because they knew that we were asking them because it was critically important, that it was part of the evidence basis of what actions needed to be taken. I think in terms of the resourcing itself, we had a number of challenges which were unique to COVID. When we have an emergency normally, I say normally, it feels like we're having them a lot. In my time as director, there's been over 50. Um, we can surge in support into an affected area. So you have a severe weather event or an earthquake. We can bring in resources from around the country to support that affected area. In COVID, the resources you had in your region at that time were the resources you were going to have throughout lockdown and as we move through the alert levels. So the ability for our civil defence emergency management groups to work with the DHBs and all of the regionally based agencies and organisations that they had available to resource the response effort. So I think that's one unique element. Another is, of course, the, the stringent public health um, actions that were required around physical distancing, about the hygiene advice, which meant that we needed to apply a flexible approach to the way that we staffed this response. So that was about having people that were working at home, uh, some people that were working in their home agencies, and some people in the National Crisis Management Centre. And we moved the centre to be co-located with health to make sure that, again, that we were as close as we could be and aligned as we could be for that overall response effort. At a central government level, we drew on agencies from across um, the entire public sector. There were those that have had experience in emergency management from past emergencies, but there was a whole lot of people that had had no exposure at any time in their professional careers. So the ability to be able to induct people in, support them to learn the role that they were going to be doing, but also to recognise the extraordinary talent we have in the New Zealand Public Service. And so um, I think as a best guess, I would say there were thousands involved in the overall response effort because part of it was also continuing the critical business of government so that we continued with those, those roles and responsibilities, but also enabling us to actually see some absolute stars and highly talented people come to the fore. So whilst this continues to be challenging, continues to be intense, and in fact we have had concurrent emergencies at the same time as COVID, what we need to do I think looking forward from here is consider 
how do we make sure we leverage all of that experience and knowledge and exposure that all agencies have had through COVID to make sure that we increase our bench strength overall for whatever the next challenge will be, because it may not be COVID and it may not be one of the traditional emergencies that we've experienced in the past. Thank you. Yeah, fortunately, they be more creative in the future. We'll never know. Hopefully not. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, Dr. Loffer, I'd love to get your perspective on this. So you've spent uh, most of your career studying um, how organizations and how leaders respond to periods of crisis. Obviously, this is uh, one of the most amazing crises we've ever had to deal with, but it's certainly not the only one we've had to deal with. And I would love to get your thoughts on um, the types of observations you've made around leaders that have been very successful in leading organizations or communities through periods of crisis, but also perhaps some of the lessons you learned in terms of things that leaders shouldn't do when leading organizations through periods of crisis. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. Uh, in terms of success stories uh, with regards to leadership during crises, uh, I'll talk about two, one from overseas and one from New Zealand, one related to COVID-19 and one unrelated, uh, which is important as well because there are many different types of crises. So let me start with the one from overseas that's related to COVID-19, and that relates to um, the CEO of Marriott and his communications with employees. Um, it's really a remarkable story because the sa at the same time he's sending this message, this five-minute message to employees, he has his own personal battle with cancer. And so what did he communicate to employees? First of all, he was honest and upfront about the situation facing Marriott. He said it was the worst crisis in the history of the company, uh, much worse than the Depression and the financial crisis from 2008. The other thing he did was he led by example. He said that he wouldn't take a salary for the next year, and also in terms of his leadership team, they would take a cut of 50%. Also, he had a plan. He talked about the need to cut costs in order to survive. He was upfront about the situation, and he didn't hide the difficulties. The other thing he did was he expressed emotion. He teared up when talking about how COVID-19 is really beyond anyone's control, and it's not anyone's fault for what's happening, and that good people are going to hurt as a result of it. And finally, he ended by talking about hope. He talked about how in China, there, this was the message, by the way, was sent back in March, at the end of March. And so he said that they will manage and things will be okay. It will take time. And they can already see that the demand for hotels and for staying at hotels is increasing in China. So... Um, it was a really very, very powerful message that went viral, and I really would encourage people to uh, search on YouTube to see it. It's a great example of how to communicate during a crisis. So that's with regards to COVID. Um, now, with regards to another type of crisis, um, I want to use an example that um, of a crisis that uh, the Growers Association, the Strawberry Growers Association of New Zealand faced when, two years ago, uh, a needle was found in a strawberry that was imported from Australia in a supermarket in Auckland. Um, now, this relates to my, my work on crisis contagion, and crisis contagion is when a crisis that hits one organization spreads to another um, that's innocent. 
that has really nothing to do with what's happening. And so in the case of the strawberry crisis, needles were found in strawberries imported from Australia. But you have strawberry growers here in New Zealand, and that spills over. People that go to supermarkets are very concerned about finding a needle in a strawberry, and that impacts strawberry growers here. Now, why do I use this as an example of um, leadership during a crisis? Um, the chief executive at the, um, at the group, the um, industry group, um, Strawberry Growers Association, reacted very quickly and decisively. What did he do? He essentially uh, said, listen, we're different from Australia. Strawberry growers in New Zealand differ from growers in Australia from the perspective of farms in New Zealand are primarily family farms. In Australia, they're primarily corporate farms. In family farms, people know who they hire much better than when you have a corporate farm. That was a very powerful message. And he essentially, by communicating that, really saved the industry at that time because that was at the beginning of the harvest. So that's another great example of leadership during a crisis. And it's important to keep in mind, it's not just COVID. There are a lot of different types of crises and uh, they all need to be managed. So I wanna go back to a point that Dr. Bloomfield made uh, when he was speaking earlier about the communication of the why. And in every example uh, that you were providing, there was obviously gonna be a situation where individuals were gonna have to go over and beyond. There's gonna be some type of sacrifice um, some type of discretionary effort. And, and I'd just like to get your perspectives on, one, the importance of communicating that, of the why, and then and how to best go about doing it. Uh, there was a great book that I once read, Search for Meaning, by a psychologist, Franco, who said, suffering ceases to be suffering when it has purpose. At that point, it becomes sacrifice. And I really think that distinction between suffering and sacrifice is leadership. I would love to get your perspectives on how do, you, how do you lead a group of individuals to appreciate that why, why we need to make that sacrifice for particular outcomes? Uh, Ian, can I just start with a couple of comments? And, and first on that, and then I just do want to um, endorse some of the previous speakers' comments about leadership and crisis. Uh, in terms of the question you've asked, I think this was one of the, um, you know, the communicating the why to both those working across the public and private sector to respond to this challenge, but also to the wider public, gave people a very clear sense of common purpose and um, there's nothing you know the first task of leadership is to uh, ensure there is a vision uh, it's not um, give a vision or direct a vision it's to ensure there was one and I think we created this uh, this opportunity in New Zealand where people could see actually if we do this we we will achieve this collectively and I've used this definition of leadership of being an invitation to collective action and we issued that invitation, and actually, uh, I, I'm not the only one who was, uh, in fact, stunned by the extent to which New Zealanders leaned in, cooperated, and, and the outcome was beyond what we imagined it might have been. Uh, so um, before I perhaps let the others comment on your question, I just want to really quickly endorse three points that have been made. First of all, um, the command and control uh, need in a crisis situation. This is not how we um, roll in the health sector. We're a very relational um, system. Um, and this is one of the challenges of leadership is to be able to pivot your leadership style um, and, and deploy different leadership uh, approaches 
uh, when um, needs must. And I got to the point when we were having daily teleconferences with our DHB chief executives, who are very independent and enjoy um, doing things their way, uh, where I had some of the ones, uh, some of them saying to me at the end of that, um, we need you to tell us what to do and we will follow. So there, is, there was a real time and place, and I've given more directives in the last few months than I had in my entire career previously, um, but that was what was needed. Uh, the second uh, point I wanted to make was one of the things, and, and Norm touched on this, one of the things that was stunning but possibly not surprising was the extent to which people did things without being asked. They saw what was needed and they led, and so a really important um, role for leaders in this situation is to enable and empower those around you to, uh, to lead without permission, to just do the necessary and um, not be bothered by the usual transactional bureaucratic processes of government. And the, the extent to which people did that is in large part responsible for the success of, I think, New Zealand's response. And the third thing, I'd just like to endorse the point about leadership giving hope. And that's particularly important in a situation like this where we can't see what's going to happen next, but we can give hope. And um, in, in the midst of uncertainty, that's what people need to have. And, of course, in New Zealand, I think we have created a situation where we can have hope because we have shown if we act um, together, if we act decisively, we can actually control the things that are within our purview and then we can chart our path forward. Others comments? I, I think just a couple of comments on the why part. Um, I think when you basically ground your entire fleet um, and uh, within a few days, I think the why becomes quite apparent. Um, so, but what becomes important then to sort of make the why more palatable is um, is the uh, empathy that goes around that and the engagement in the communications. And I think um, at Air New Zealand, we were able to lean into our culture that, that, that has been built up over many years into what is a high-performing organisation. And so people um, at Air New Zealand, we call them Air New Zealanders, Air New Zealanders uh, think of um, their job as much more <laughs> of a, um, I, I guess, uh, a service, you know, um, something that you do, it's a calling, it's something you do for the broader community and we understand that our role is to connect New Zealanders with the world, whether that be trade, people, etc. Um, and for that reason, there were a couple of things that kind of just stood out in the why. The why is, you know, yes, we'll do a Wuhan repatriation flight. Yes, we'll do cargo services while we're still in lockdown level four. Um, and people would, you know, we'd ask for volunteers and we'd have so many because people just really wanted to live that sense of uh, service and purpose. And when it came to the why, the why um, had an implication for us. And that was, as I mentioned before, that thousands of people lost their jobs what we found is that on the whole, um, people were extremely accepting of that um, and incredibly dignified in their exits. Um, many planes, in fact, Norm and I were just talking about it before, many planes where someone on the flight crew was having their final flight and actually made a beautiful speech to the plane, um, followed by great applause, no hugs, I can promise you, but, you know, um, just, uh, and people have gone on to incredible jobs, and so I think that incredible uh, level of communication, engagement and empathy that went alongside the why, which was very clear um, but the why for the broader New Zealand, and we still have to fly every week to certain ports internationally with a great deal of care, PPE and all those things to make sure that 
our families and friends that are stuck overseas can get back here to New Zealand. And so there's kind of a really a higher order purpose that, that has gravitated the organisation in the midst of such difficulty. Um, I think uh, one of the, the challenges we have is around having had so many emergencies that in fact the thread that binds is around the impact of the work that we do on those that live, work or visit New Zealand. And so in a COVID situation, you have that as a clear, as a clear backdrop. The, the challenge on top of that is the fact that every part of every person's life is directly impacted. Unlike, say, we, you know, and bearing in mind that earlier in the year, uh, just before we moved into the alert levels, we had floods down south. Um, for those people in those areas, clearly they're impacted, but also we can bring in that support to support those communities. For this situation, it means that each of us individually have our own situations at home with our own family considerations, children or parents, other dependents, but equally, the role that we're performing is, is very different. We're adjusting and being agile about how that plays out. But also the nature of what this means across our business as usual and across the systems we operate in is also different. So the challenge of trying to ensure that we're, we're caring for all those that are trying to process what does this mean for them and against uncertainty, against things that might be changing quite rapidly personally and professionally, but also that ability to make sure that it's, it's understood. And I think Ashley um, spoke to this around the, the team of five million, everyone taking uh, a sense of their personal responsibility in this because individual actions mattered. And so that is the same in terms of when we think about those involved in response and having that autonomy to be able to get on with the job, whether in the private sector, public, not-for-profit, is actually to be able to enable people to take those actions for themselves but recognise the benefits and create the overall outcome for the greater good of the country. And I think that in itself became really palatable and well understood around how we actually get ahead of COVID-19. Mindful that we, we certainly have made available for people to post questions on the chat function. And so in a minute or so, we're going to sort of go to that and, and see what type of questions our audience out there is providing. But maybe before we get to the audience questions, I'll ask one more question to the panel. Uh, it, it has been my observation, certainly in the role that I have at the university, that the pressures that you were talking about, the, all the various aspects that this has had for us individually in our households, in our lives, you know, people wear those. And, and I, I, I've had to say to people, it's, you know, it's, it's okay if I don't see your best self today. You know, it's going to be some days where I'll get to see the best you, and there'll be some days where I'll see the other you. And we, we're going to give through that. So there's, there's going to be moments of conflict. You know, despite the best intentions, despite a clear understanding of why we're doing this, there's probably going to be moments of conflict. And I'd be curious to get some sense from you in terms of how you have managed that conflict that inevitably comes when you're dealing with a high anxiety, high stress situation, or perhaps insights about how leaders in other situations have handled this conflict. I'll go first. Please. Um, I think my observation would be the, the, the opportunity to take a breath. Um, even during lockdown, and it was pretty unique here in Wellington, you know, you could walk across the parliamentary precinct, there's not a car, a person, a bike, you can hear tui, and nothing else. The, 
the ability to to take a breath when when things are high pressured is really important, no matter what role you're operating in. But there's something about being able to step through problems and issues and try and make sure you you can tackle them one bite at a time. They can seem insurmountable, but in fact, the ability to unpack them and work through them one thing at a time actually means you can reach outcomes. My observation of the, the COVID response and the kind of pressures there was about you know, bringing your whole self to work and being able to say when you're having a tough day and people feeling that support. Um, I'm, I'm a hugger and um, that was my biggest personal challenge, I think, during um, the alert levels. But finding other ways, you know, a bit of a, a joke and a laugh about you do an ankle tap, a elbow tap, you do a hip tap, and it's kind of, and the, and the eyebrows is your full top to bottom hug. Um, but also what you say and your body language around showing care for those around that are finding this really hard, giving people the opportunity to have time out. Um, you know, and also a sense of humour that actually it's it's okay um, and there are days when the pressure is really high but that being able to be supported and support others becomes critically important. Um, and no one's immune from those pressures. You know, I think at the heart of this we see the very best of leadership at all levels. Leaders, leadership is in all of us. It's not something that is for only some people. It's It's in all of us. But equally, you can see the very worst. And the challenge, I think, is to find ways to support people to be able to find their way through this and be able to then get the support that they need. I'd just build on that by saying that I think across all the companies that I'm involved with, I think it's um, it's been absolutely okay to not be okay. And I think actually one of the silver linings, if there are any of COVID, is that um, I think this will accelerate um, the kind of mental health systems that we have, both in the private, private public sector and just more generally. Um, and I think it's really clear that people have different levels of resilience and, you know, we need to be supportive of that and wrap, wrap the things around people that they need where the resilience is, is is kind of a little more limited um, and we're all different like that in different contexts and different environments. The really cool thing that I've seen is that people have been very creative around some of those issues and anxieties that you talked about, so people being stuck at home on Zoom calls, team calls all the time. Um, it, it's, it's you know, people have become very creative about how to make that fun and how to make that interactive and engaging. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of my fellow board colleagues' um, pets by name now. Um, some of the children that might pop up and ask for a biscuit halfway through a meeting. We've seen so many things on the internet, which are, you know, there was a woman that accidentally took her uh, iPad to the bathroom um, and um, made an inappropriate entrance to a meeting. There's been all sorts of things, but I think it's kind of humanised. It's actually, you know, sometimes people sort of look like they might be in their pyjamas, um, and, and, but it's humanised us, and I think it's created more of an ability to show, to Norm's point, who you are, and for people to be creative and, and to prop up those that aren't feeling resilient on, on a particular day or a particular week. So it's, there, is some, um, there are some bright spots that have come out of it in terms of how we're connecting as individuals and human beings. I think it's also important for leaders to understand when they're not ready, for instance, to face the public because of how they feel. Uh, I'll give you an example from overseas. 
um, the CEO of BP when there was the oil spill. Uh, there was a very infamous saying that came out of him when he was speaking to the media. He said, and I'm sure he regrets this, of course, he wants his life back. He also wants his life back. So suddenly it was more about how was he was feeling, even though, of course, the crisis was about the victims and what happened as a result of the oil spill. And when I teach crisis management, I use this as an example of how you can learn as a leader from the situation. Actually, what he said, a lot of people feel. You're under a lot of pressure and stress, and your life has gotten a lot harder as a result of the crisis. But of course, you don't want to express that. But when you're under a lot of stress, that's what happens. And really, what is a good takeaway from that situation is, Perhaps he should have been shielded from the media at that moment by his people. So there's a lot that can be learned from uh, just how you feel internally in terms of whether or not you should be speaking publicly. Uh, Ian, this is, this is one of the things I've been quite open about and it's been reported um, over uh, recent weeks, including an article in the Herald last week, um, that... You know, just being open about, uh, of course, um, ahead of the daily stand-ups, um, I would feel, uh, I would feel focused. I would feel my cortisol levels rising. I would um, need to make sure I was well prepared. And as the weeks went by, I could feel that my anxiety and stress levels were were rising. And and to the day when I didn't have a stand-up, but felt the same emotions, and I realised actually this means I do need a break. Um, and and I guess that there's a tendency to conflate feeling stressed and anxious with not being resilient. In fact, that you can't be resilient unless you recognise your limitations, unless you recognise the anxiety, the stress levels, and then you proactively take steps to address those. And one of those key steps is taking a break when you need to, and that can be a short break or, you know, it, it can be needing to take a week off and just go and reset. But I think for me that's been a big learning and I've been trying to contribute to this this discussion about actually even the people who appear calm and are doing this and, and you know I'm not someone who actually suffers from anxiety I don't tend to experience high levels of stress but it doesn't mean they're not there and that um, we shouldn't be open about that and be accepting of it and be looking out for it in each other and taking and supporting each other to take the steps that we need to take to address it and therefore be resilient. It's really critical. I mean, you want to be there for your people, but you can't be there for your people if you yourself aren't ready. And I think recognizing our own human limitations is something that, that, that humbleness is quite critical for, I think, any effective leader. Maybe we have some questions from the, the broader audience, um, and we can see what types of thoughts they would like to raise. So there's a, a question which, and what we're able to do is hold together the questions to see uh, votes and which ones rise to the top. And the number one question that individuals have, we, we've touched on a little bit, but maybe people can maybe share their own personal stories about looking after their own mental well-being and how, they, how you have handled that or how you support your staff in handling their mental well-being through periods of time of crisis or anxiety. Any, any thoughts around it that you'd like to add on to that you haven't discussed thus far? Um, I have two daughters, uh, nine and 11. They helped keep me very grounded because <laughs> when you get home, it doesn't matter what kind of day you've had, actually they're looking 
for their mother to be present and engaged and to still do dinner and read stories and do the nighttime routine. So I found that that has been um, particularly helpful because there's no way to avoid it, you know. Um, the, we got uh, two kittens just before lockdown, which seemed which was unrelated to lockdown, but as it worked out was, um, was the way it worked out. Um, those kittens have challenged me around their toileting behaviour. <laughs> and so that is another thing that is just creates a groundingness that, you know, you're still cleaning up things at home or you're, you're, you're drawn back into the reality of life that actually helps go, that's right. There's all of these really practical things, and I think those help to to keep the focus around what's what you need to focus on right now, and not not repeatedly being drawn into perhaps thinking about those other stresses. But like Ashley said, you know that I, I certainly I took myself um, out for breaks, even a few minutes. Um, I think when we got to alert level three, and it was physically possible to get coffee, that really helped that actually some routine about what are the things that are normalised for you that you would normally do to be able to take some time out, trying to make sure you you maintain those, um, but also being able to share with others when you have those, those pressured days or when things are particularly tough or a really chunky issue that needs to be worked through. Drawing others in to talk that through, I think, becomes part of it. Um, I would love to say that it was exercise, but in my particular situation, I just that might have been the thing that would have broken me. Um, but I, I just think it's finding your own things that help you be grounded. Yeah. Other other thoughts individuals like to share. Um, well, I, I think uh, a couple of things. Well, firstly, my, my children are in their twenties, so they weren't interested in a bedtime story. So um, that that was uh, there wasn't that therapy available to me. Um, however, I think the one thing for me that was the most important was that even though Air New Zealand was the private sector company most impacted by COVID and continues to be, there are others. There were others that were impacted, and um, the business community in New Zealand is small. Uh, and, you know, you're able to tap into your colleagues, your peers, your, you know, the, the broader sector who are dealing with challenges um, and lean into each other. And, you know, I'd have many sort of chairman to chairman discussions um, with others uh, in, in the NZX top 50 or, or whatever. And, and, you know, just, yeah, we're all, we're all dealing with it. You're not the only person that's impacted. And I think the other critical thing, you know, you're taking breaks is really important. But to take a break, you have to trust other people. Nobody is indispensable, and so getting that into everyone's mindset is really important because if it is a marathon, not a sprint, you can't own it every moment, and so you have to be able to say, hey, actually, today I have to do this, so the deputy chairman is now going to, you know, that's going to be for her today, and so delegation and making sure that there are people around you, you know, we all have to work in a team. It can't just be one person, and um, that becomes even more critical in a crisis. So, uh, Therese, you mentioned earlier in one of your comments about there's this need to deal with the here and now, but it's important to also have individuals around you that are thinking about tomorrow or perhaps even next year. And I'd be curious to get some sense from, from you as a panel um, how do you deal with that issue of we have to survive, but there also has to still be an eye on strategy you know, about what we're going to be doing going forward and, and how you balance that or how, how you set that up structurally or, or just what is the ways in which you've thought about that as potentially a tension, Rick, 
Well, all our energy has to be the only to get into today, but we, we have to be planning for tomorrow as well. I'll start since I raised it and um, others will have other thoughts. I mean, I think um, when you sit on a board of directors, and particularly if you're chairing the board, um, your job isn't to manage every aspect of the day-to-day -day operations and your job is to have a broader mindset. So it really was important for me to make sure that the board had time to set aside to think about, okay, you know, the fleet might be grounded now, we might be in the middle of all of these things that are happening, but actually we're still going to be an airline in three or four years' time. And so what does that look like? How does that feel? And to Dr. Bloomfield's earlier comment about hope, that inspires hope because you need to put a little bit of that in there because actually we're thinking about the long term because there is a long term. When you start saying there's no long term, then that's a real issue. Um, so that to me is really important is getting that, that long term focus. So if again I just lean into the Air New Zealand example, we had a new chief executive the first day we, uh, he started, we stopped flying to Shanghai because of COVID, so it's been quite an interesting introduction for him. But actually we've still leaned on him to develop a new strategy in conjunction with the board and we're actually about to launch that. So you actually just have to create time. It's a discipline. And especially when you're in the private sector, you know, you are holding in the palm of your hands shareholders' money. It is our absolute obligation to make sure we're doing the right things by them as well as by the country. And so um, we have to have a plan. We have to have a way forward. We have to think. And, of course, no one has a crystal ball. No one knows exactly what will be hap happening. Will we all be flying to LA for a holiday in one year or four years? No one actually knows the answer. So, you know, planning in that kind of environment is tricky, but you have to do it um, and you have to have a clear sort of pathway emerge. So really important, again, to that team thing and no one is indispensable. Some people have to be a bit more focused longer midterm. Some people have to be more focused on how we're getting that plane out today. Other thoughts around that? Can I just comment? This is something we've found a real challenge in the health ministry and the wider health system for a couple of reasons. The first, of course, for the first few months of the year, we were responding full noise to this very uncertain situation as the lead agency across government. So it was a very operational day-to-day -day and rapid decision-making setting we were working in. Then as we came back down through the levels, of course, we still had a health system to lead, uh, delivering health um, care to New Zealanders from pre-cradle to grave. And so the immediate focus was, what have people missed out on? How do we ramp the system up again? So again, it was quite a near-term focus. We, we were also planning for the next possible outbreak, which came our way in the last few weeks in Auckland, and we've responded again to that. And in a sense, it's whilst we've had a a bit of a strategic view through that. We're just now starting to think, how do we how do we actually free up a team of people and not pull them at all into the operational side of things so that they can be thinking about the three, six, 12, 24 months ahead? Because the, the, the view that we can develop from a health and public health perspective about where this pandemic might be going, the different options, will be um, essential to be able to inform other parts of government, indeed the private sector and the whole community, about what to plan for and what to, what to expect. So um, we take that very seriously, but it's, it, you have to be incredibly deliberate about it. and We've found that a real challenge today. For, uh, for us, we became a departmental agency uh, as the National Emergency Management Agency on the 1st of December 2019. We think we've had nine days without an emergency during that time till now, with a number of concurrent emergencies happening at the same time. And I think 
there's a couple of elements there. There's one around the next emergency could happen at any time. So there's there's the need to stay focused on how are we tracking against our ability to adjust or be agile should should the next thing occur in the meantime. But also because we're in the middle of an emergency management system reform, how do we continue to both stabilise a new organisation but also progress the, the issues that in fact we're we're finding have been amplified or have crystallised even more specifically during the COVID response. And so the ability to keep some elements of that going so that you're benefiting in that in that medium term is, is critically important. So um, Carolyn Schwelger, who's our chief executive, has basically been focused on being able to make sure we were making that progress around stabilising the NEMA workforce and progressing the work that would need to be done around our legislation, our arrangements, so that as we adjust to COVID being our our now new backdrop for everything, how we start to build in the agility to take account of that as part of business as usual rather than a sense of lurch every time we might have a resurgence or when the next emergency happens, it's trying to actually create more smoothness in the way as a system that we start to adjust to these challenges. I think um, in terms of the point, uh, the government really faces a huge challenge in terms of what to focus on, what to communicate, how much to talk about COVID, how much to talk about the future. Um, And um, it's tricky because, um, of course, everyone is very interested in the situation around COVID, but at the same time, they want to know what's happening after it's over. And, of course, this is happening in the context of an election, which makes, makes things even more complicated. So any mistake in terms of the focus could be very detrimental in terms of the outcome of the election. So, so the issue is not only for companies and organizations, it's also at the government level, a very uh, tricky issue. Um, how much to talk about the crisis that you're managing as opposed to tomorrow? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to sort of be working on the foundation and building a house at the same time is a pretty tricky uh, task to do. But I think it's certainly, uh, it is what is called of us at this moment in time. And, and I guess this is just the responsibility that leaders and organizations, both big and small, will have to face. I think I'm going to draw to a close. And I'm going to ask Mary Slater in a minute to come up and uh, provide the final statement about it. But before I step aside, I just want to say thank you very much to each of you. Um, first and foremost for today, in terms of sharing your insight across a wide variety of experiences. Also, um, I just really appreciate your humility in talking about how you've all had to deal with and provide guidance to individuals in some pretty challenging situations and sort of speaking candidly about that. And I think that that humanizing of it is certainly something that um, I think people will really reflect upon and I think probably take a lot of confidence from. But most importantly, perhaps, is the, the, the tremendous role each of you have played over the last, over this year, really helping us as a community um, survive, and, and literally in some cases, um, also make sense of what's going on, providing us with guidance to understand this thing that perhaps most of us would not actually even comprehend. We know it's there. And all of that really does require um, the, the things that you all have done. And so just on behalf of our university, 
but perhaps also for our community, but certainly for me, I just want to thank you very much for that leadership. It, it, you know, there's, there's times when we can criticize leaders, but there are moments in time when we appreciate, thank goodness we have a good leader. And I certainly appreciate all the great leadership that you've been able to do. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Tekoki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.